the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast, presented by Country Ski and Sport. Ski season is here, and it's time to gear up at Country Ski and Sport. Shop now for your best preseason deals at any of their three locations in Hanson, Quincy, and Westwood, Mass. Or shop online at countryski.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the New England Ski Journal Base Camp Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Specian, with my co-host... Not Eric Wilbur. I'm sure people are noticing that. Eric Wilbur is far more handsome than I. Well, actually, we'll leave that up to the viewers. But producer Dave, yes, here, instead of behind the glass, behind the, the desk. And pleasure to be here. Eric can't make it this episode. He'll be back very soon. We look forward to seeing him. But I'm happy to be here and, and fill in. And I hope I pass the audition, Mike. Well, it was you know what? We had to do an audition beforehand to make sure he was acceptable, but he's all we had. <laughs> Just saying. That was what swayed the vote. The fact that there was no one else available to do it. Yes. You know, actually, Dave has been with us. Just so you know, we're almost to 60 episodes at this episode right here. Yeah. And it might even be 60. Yeah. And Dave has been a part of this whole journey of building the base camp and bringing to you stories about skiing and the ski world. Absolutely. And it's, it's a pleasure. It's one of the favorite podcasts I I work on. You guys always have great guests, great stories and great ways to complain when it's not snowing. That's important for skiers. It's, it's important for this podcast. It's important (laughs) for the industry. I'm just saying, come on, mother nature. But today, today's podcast is going to be really cool because we're talking to a longtime friend of mine, an ex-employee, no less, who really created a really cool career in journalism and then came out with an awesome book called A Hundred Slopes of a Lifetime. Right. And so he's highlighting some of his, some of the most majestic and some of his favorite uh, mountains. So before we get into the conversation with Gordy Megraz, Mike, I thought I'd ask you, tell us your perfect person to ask. I don't even know. Could you put a guesstimate as to how many ski resorts you've been to that you've skied? Over a hundred? Over a hundred. Okay. Okay. Does that count? It, absolutely. It's it's about 98 more than me. And so tell me what, what, what facets of a mountain are important to you? What makes it, what makes a great hill? Well, as you have heard me say time and time again, over in your little booth over there, <laughs> independents are huge to me. But some of the great, great runs in the world aren't necessarily at independent runs, Mm -hmm. okay? So when when you look at Stowe, for example, you have the front four, but you have Perry Merrill. If you remember recently when we were talking about with the ski patrol at Stowe about their anniversary, Perry Merrill came up. And the history in, in a trail of that nature is just incredible. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Killington, Outer Limits, just just one of those iconic trails. Or go to Taos, New Mexico, and you look up, and the first run you see is Ailes Run. And there's a sign there saying this isn't the whole hill mm. because it's steep, but it, it just climbs, and it's, it's awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. So no matter where you go, whether it's skiing up in the Monashies 
off a helicopter, which I've done, or whether it's at Gunstock looking over the lake. Each run is so special when you just seize the moment of that moment. Mm. And the hidden gems make it more fun, right? Oh, oh right. And and that's what, in, in listening to all your stories on this podcast, those are the things that I dig more than there are going to be the majestic mountains and the veils and whatnot. But the the little hidden secrets are ones that I think are appealing to most people because the, your average skier is probably never going to make it out to Vail. The, the ski enthusiast will, but the average sort of weekend skier. And so, but it'll be cool to to talk to Gordy and get into some of his favorite slopes. And how many in the book would you say that you visited? You know what? I have went through the brook, but I would have to go add up. Maybe not the trail, but yep. the ski area. Right. Yes. So I would have to go through the book and start to play them out. I can tell you last year, because this year has been a tough year as I've rehabbed my knee. Mm. I haven't been on the hill as much. But last year, I can tell you that I skied a run at Gunstock in the trees. I had never been in there before. Mm. It was 18 inches of new. And I could have died and gone to heaven. Mm. It was that perfect because every set of tracks were first track set mm-hmm. set by me and I was by myself going wow this is this is a slope of a lifetime wow so you get to the bottom of the mountain and you're like I'm not telling anyone about that trail because well, I want it to be mine well I just kept going farther and farther to the right skiers right and those moments I also had a day last year when I was coming up off the tram at Cannon mm-hmm. and looked out at Mount Lafayette and said, okay, this is the trail of a lifetime. So there's been so many moments like that. I, I don't, it's going to be interesting talking to Gordy to see what his thoughts were and where these came from. Mm-hmm. And you buried the lead here, Mike, you, after surgically reconstructing your knee, or I should say having it done. You didn't reconstruct it yourself. That would have been cool. But recovering from that, you are, you have skied. You're, I, I was amazed. It really was a pretty quick turnaround. I'm not surprised because even – I figured you'd be up on that the slopes even if you couldn't walk. You, you need to ski. <laughs> Did you ski before you walked as a young as a young man? Possibly. I, uh, I, I actually didn't grow up skiing. So. Oh, okay. But, but basketball is probably why my knees really screwed up. But – but Ed, congratulations. You're back on the slopes. I know that means a lot to you. Getting on the hill, one thing to get on the hill, it's it was the mental part of being able to get on the hill. Before 12 weeks after complete reconstruction, I was out. I wasn't planning on skiing a lot, but when they say it's like riding a bike, it yeah. really is like riding a bike. I didn't feel anything. That's great. That's uh, great. Yeah, and eventually you get over that, but I know what you mean because I've had knee surgery, and even after it's fully healed, there are moments where you're like, it's mm. kind of your muscle memory tells you there's something wrong in there. But. What what I what I can tell you is that the titanium gets cold quick. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. So make make sure I've got to make sure I have the right layers over that part of the equation. Mike Spieson, the bionic man, the hey, bionic skier. Exactly. Okay. Coming up next will be Gordy Migros, New England gent. Scratch that. Okay. Coming up next, we'll have Gordy Migros from New England originally, living out in the Rocky Mountains now, a former editor of Outside Magazine and the author 
of 100 Slopes of a Lifetime. We all should be excited about this one, seeing what slopes we need to go after as we plan the next chapter of our skiing careers. We'll be right back after this message. And welcome back to the Base Camp Podcast. Now on the Zoom line, we have Gordy Migros, former editor of Outside Magazine. He's a freelance journalist and author of the book we're going to be talking about, 100 Slopes of a Lifetime. How you doing, Gordy? I'm doing well, Mike. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the last time I saw you was at SIA in Denver. Yeah, that sounds right. But you're out in Colorado now? Yeah, I live uh, now in Basalt. I moved here about two and a half years ago from Jackson, where I was for almost a decade, uh, and just still enjoying the ski life. That is fantastic. Well, before we get into your history and the book, what's the skiing like out in Colorado this year? It's been pretty good. We had a pretty barren early season, but it's picked up a bit. We got some snow a couple weeks ago, then it got warm, but now it's snowing again. So I, it's been, it's pretty good. I'd say it's decent. Well, that's great. I know you still have family here in Vermont. As you well know, we started out pretty rough also. Um, it's gotten better, but temperatures are going up right now on us. So we'll see how, what we do in the springtime. So give us a little background on your upbringing and how skiing sort of formulated your life and so on. I grew up in South Londonderry, Vermont, which is about 10 minutes from Stratton Mountain, 10 minutes from Magic Mountain, 10 minutes, 15 minutes from Bromley. So right in that little triangle of ski areas and grew up skiing at Stratton where my my dad worked for a while. And so I basically my daycare was the little cub, the, the ski school there. And so, yeah, it's in my, my family, I come from a family of skiers. So skiing was always in my blood. And when I was, I, I think around 10, 11, somewhere in there, I started ski racing. It was kind of the thing to do. I, there's more options now, but back then it was basically ski race in the winter or not really do anything, go sledding, I guess. But so I, I ski raced through High school, I went to Strat Mountain School, the ski academy there, and then uh, ski raced at Boston College, coached at BC, and that's when I was also working for you, Mike. At, and then got went ended up going to grad school at Emerson and and got my master's in journalism, which led me to an internship at Outside, and I just sort of kept working my way up at Outside. And and then through other magazines, but I, I write about a lot more than skiing these days, but skiing is sort of what, what got me, I think what got me the job and what I, and I still, I still go back to, to ski writing quite a bit. That's, that's so cool. I mean, I remember when you were in Boston with me, I remember when you were at BC, let's go back to Stratton for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Kim Reichelm on, of course. Uh, another Stratton Mountain grad. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't had Pam Fletcher on, but I should get a hold of Pam since she's right here and talk to her. She's living in that neck of the woods now. I, I don't know if you knew that. I um, didn't. Oh, she's out here now? No, no, not oh, your neck of the woods, the Stratton neck of the woods. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I guess no. I, I had heard that she had moved up there. Yeah. 
And Mercedes is back in Vermont yeah. also. I mean, that whole Stratton aura, um, one of the premier ski academies in the country. What was it like being at Stratton Mountain School? It was Amazing. I so I I grew up sort of idolizing those guys, those all of the students there, and and sort of dreaming about going there. It just seemed like such a fun experience. I think my parents sort of wanted me to go to a, a school that was had more to offer. It could could be where I could become a a, a more well rounded person or student. And but I think in retrospect, we all agree that it was the best place for me. It really the, the Stratmount School is a lot of fun, and you obviously you learn how to be a really good skier, great skier, and great and and good to great ski racer. And but more than that, it teaches you a lot of discipline and and a lot of like I, I learned how to sort of really balance my time well, and because I was on the hill so often. Um, training and then in the gym for dry land and all sorts of commitments that I still then had to get all my schoolwork done. And so I, you, you just figure out how to make that work. You find times in the base lodge and the van on the way to races to get that work done. I think like my senior year, when I had sort of reached a level where I was traveling a lot for ski racing, I'm, I think there was like three straight weeks where I didn't go to school, but you still have to get all the schoolwork done. So you, you figure out how to, how to do that. And I think in my career, it's helped me immensely having gone to that school, you know, and, and figuring all that out. Yeah. We, last year we had CVA and KMS on together as a mm -hmm. ski Academy podcast. And it's amazing what, the students, the athletes had to do to make it all work, especially with dry land training, hill training, and the immense schoolwork that was there. BC, Division One. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I chose BC because I, I, growing up in Vermont, I sort of wanted to get out of Vermont and I wanted to go to a bigger school. Not that BC is huge, but it's a lot bigger than a lot of the other new Division One ski teams in New England, any Bates or Middlebury or some of the other schools that I considered. So I and the coach quite actively recruited me, which made me feel good and made me feel good about going there. And I I absolutely loved BC. I I think my skiing my freshman year was quite good. I was like rolling off this like ski academy experience and still was I, I was still on top of my game my sophomore year I sort of slipped a little bit my and then I I ended up going to a camp that summer to sort of try to get my some of my skills back and then uh, junior year was good and senior year was okay but you know I think like what I suffered from at BC was just not having like that that intense training which I, I realized I needed as a ski racer some some guys can some guys some girls can get away with not having the best training we we trained most often at blue hills which is not like the greatest slope for a ski racer especially if you're going you're going from blue hills and then you're racing on those mountains up in vermont new hampshire maine like that it doesn't quite cut it so yeah i, I think now the team 
mostly trains at Wachusett, which is a little bit better. And then they spend a lot of time going off and spending time in Vermont, New Hampshire, and even out here in Colorado, they do their Thanksgiving camp out here. Sure. How did, how did all this lead to journalism? That was just, uh, that was just me, like not knowing what I wanted to do and, and like saying, oh, this sounds like a cool career. This, this sounds fun. And I think I had, I think I knew I had some writing chops and maybe some in reporting, maybe, maybe I'd be good at reporting or good at investigations, things like that. And so I applied and got into Emerson and as it turned out, it was, I loved it. I mean, I loved that program, that program at Emerson. I loved it right from the beginning and I loved BC, but I, I didn't really, I wasn't all that academically focused at BC. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I, I learned things, but I, I didn't necessarily learn the things that I was going to use in life. Um, so I, yeah, at Emerson, I, that, that first day at Emerson, I, I, I was like, oh, I, I think I made a, a really good choice here. And so I, yeah, I, I really dove into that experience and, and got a lot out of it. And I was coaching at BC at the time. So I, I was, again, I had to, I had a lot of balance. I had to, I had to figure out how to get my schoolwork done and how to get to, I was living in, for part of that time, I was living in, in Coolidge Corner. And then the other part, I was living in South Boston. So it was a haul to get up to BC. It was a haul to get over to Emerson. It was like, I, I had a lot of windshield time and I, I had to like learn how to figure out how to get everything done, which I think, again, I think it helped me a lot when I got to outside and they were, even as an intern, they were working you like crazy. And so, but I felt like very well prepared for all that. Yeah. It's, it's that balancing act that you probably learned at the ski academy because it's, it's one and the same. I really wish Eric Wilber was here for this because he's the journalism guy out of this mix. I'm the ski industry guy, Uh, but Outside Magazine, Powder Magazine, Ski Magazine, The Old Snow Country, those were pinnacles in the ski slash outdoor venue. What was it like working for Outside? It was incredible because Outside, way before I knew I wanted to get into journalism, I, I started reading Outside when I was probably like 13, 14 years old, but my parents got it. And I, I mean, I remember, I vividly remember reading into the wild when that story came out and outside and it was called i think death of an innocent but i was just absolutely mesmerized by that story and and continued to be mesmerized by that magazine and the journalism that they did and and so getting actually like getting that internship which i which i thought was a long shot because they only take three interns every six months and they get, they, I don't know what it's like now. I don't even know if they have the program anymore, but at the time they were getting hundreds of applicants a month for those t- three internship positions. And I, I just think that it was my, basically like my, my going through Emerson and my background as a skier 
that sort of sold them on me. But I felt like very, very lucky to get that internship. And and that was part of it. When I got there, I knew that that was very lucky and I wanted to try to stay it outside. So I was working, I did anything they asked me to do. And I, and I, and I did more. I, if I could, I tried to do more. So I, I was lucky again. I felt like I, I put my time in and I did my work. But when my internship was up, they hired me on as a, like a researcher, like an editorial assistant, essentially. Well, outside has always been a benchmark. I did when my wife and I lived in the Denver area. I was doing ad space for Powder Magazine, Snowboarder Magazine, and also the original Bike Magazine when Surfer Publication had them. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I think I remember you telling me. Yeah, that, that just great times with great people. Well, we're here to talk about something, a project you put together with National Geographic, and I'm really interested to hear how this came came about and what it's all about, but it's a hundred slopes of a lifetime. How did this idea come about? Well, so this book actually was, they came to me, National Geographic came to me and said, this was, I want to say, it was either January or February, right before the pandemic. And they came to me and they, I had just wrapped up this huge story for Wired that was about to publish and I kind of like didn't have a ton on my plate at that point. And I said, and they came to me and they said, we've got this idea for this book. We've done a few others in the, that are similar to this. And we'd like you to, to write this. And, and I said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And I was sort of worried that I'd have all this work to do on this book and that I, I didn't know how I would be able to get my magazine work done and also get this book done. As it turned out, we went into lockdown a month later and the the magazine stories sort of dried up. Like what was being, you, you couldn't really send anybody on reporting assignments anymore because nobody could be face-to-face to do anything. And so they were bringing a lot of those stories in-house to save money. And so I had all this time, an entire year to, to work on this thing. And that's all I worked on. So it was a, it was really a good timing, but the concept was really like, we want you to write about a hundred of the best slopes in the world. And we want like a nice mix. So even 25 of those are cross country skiing. Sure. Um, And, but we want like intermediate, we want expert, we want like very aspirational slopes to, to be featured in this. And so I kind of, I've, I've skied obviously a lot and all over the place, but I don't know all the ski areas and I don't know all the slopes, all the best slopes all over the the world. So I reached out to my huge, after almost 20 years of, of doing this and doing a lot of reporting on skiing, I have this vast network of skiers and snowboarders and guides and instructors and all these people I know. So I reached out to all these people and I said, what are your favorite ski areas and or what are your favorite slopes and why? And I probably got like 200 responses and I had to winnow that down to a hundred. And yeah. And so ultimately the, the list was what I decided were the best based on 
reading what people had written and 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 trying to find a good mix both from a level ski level perspective but also from a geographic perspective i wanted to really spread it out sure so that's what we got here and how did lindsay vaughn is mentioned right on the front cover what is lindsay vaughn's connection to this book why well, we needed to have a forward in the book and so i i reach i i've profiled Lindsay for Ski Magazine in the past and interviewed her for a variety of other things. But so I, and we have a, we have a pretty good relationship. So I reached out to Lindsay and asked her if she would write the forward and she was, yeah, happy to do that, which was great. Lindsay Vaughn's name on the cover sells more books. So yeah, and she did, a, I thought she did a great job with the forward. Yeah, I, when I read it, it was very good, and we're gonna we're gonna have to talk afterwards because Lindsay hasn't been on this podcast yet. <laughs> so we'll we'll have to work on that one. If if I can't have Michaela, I want Lindsay. <laughs> but that's that's awesome. Well, let's talk about the book and what what the listener is going to find inside of it. Yeah, so like I said, there's a variety of slopes all over the world. Each write-up got between like 300 and 600 words. So I, I really dived into all aspects of, of both the ski area and the culture and, and, and then obviously went into detail on the slope itself. But I wanted to make sure that readers could sort of feel like they were there, could, could sort of feel like not just what this particular slope is like, but everything else you'll experience if you go and ski at this place. And so, and I'd probably, I probably only skied at like 25 of these ski areas or, or skied only 25 of these runs. So I relied on people on the ground in various places to give me a good understanding of, of all of the ski areas and all of the, the culture and the, and the, the slope, the, the slopes themselves. So I, I had to do it an insane amount of reporting to, to get this thing done. And it really came down to the wire. Like I, I was pretty late on a couple deadlines and I just very much underestimated how much work this was going to take. It's like putting everything on the plate and realizing you can't eat it all. Yeah. Very much so. It was tough. Yeah. Well, your, your home turf here in new England, let's talk about two or three of those slopes that you would say are slopes of a lifetime that the New England skier should not miss? Go ahead and um, give me two or three. Well, I have Tuckerman's in there, which I think is, if you've never been up to Tucks and experienced skiing, any of the runs up there, I think I put Left Gully in, right? I mean- One of my favorites. Yeah, and and like Mike, I I wrote this for many years ago now, and I, I I've opened it maybe once or twice since then. But like, so you have to bear with me if I don't remember exactly what's in there. But I'm pretty sure it was Left Gully, which I love. That is correct. And, um, is. and yeah, if you've never been up to Tux, if, if you've never experienced that sort of pilgrimage in the spring to go ski that, and I know a lot of guys are skiing uh, on Tuckermans in the winter now too, but it is just, it's, it's a rite of passage for a skier, I, I believe, to go up there and, and ski the, that stuff. Yeah, I have to open the book here because I did make sure I got the book before this podcast because yeah. I had it. It was always on my list to support you first and foremost. So we have Mad River Glen on there. Yeah. Paradise. I know that's yeah. in there. 
I, I think a classic, one, one of the best skiing runs in the country when the snow's good. Yeah. And Mad River, again, is just like a completely unique experience. Like you, you go to Mad River and it, it, it just, it, it, no place else feels like Mad River Glen, right? When you go ski there. It's just a, a very, again, it's a place where if you haven't skied it, especially if you live in New England, you have to go try it. I, I put, yeah, I, Killington is in there. Stowe is in there. Like there, there's a lot of classics in there from New England, from the East Coast and Lake Placid. I had to get Whiteface in there. Of course. Um, and I put the downhill run in there, which is very super iconic and, and a trail that I obviously grown up ski racing, spent a lot of time on. But yeah, I mean, there's, I think like the, the, a lot of people maybe poo-poo the, the East Coast skiing, but some of those runs are, even if you live out here, I think a lot of those runs that I put in that book are worth going East to try. Yeah. I, I think the other thing you mentioned it a little while ago about not all advanced runs, there were beginner intermediate Sugarloaf, Tote Road. I yeah. would think that is a slope of a lifetime, but I've skied it. I've skied well, just, down Tote Road. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it's just a great family-friendly trail. Yes. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Tote Road because I interviewed Sam Bass, who is the former editor of skiing for that run, even though I've I've ski, obviously skied Tote Road and it's I enjoyed it. But Sam, I just stayed with Sam this weekend in Boulder for a couple of nights and he's actually the marketing director at Eldora now. Sure. Uh, so we had a we had a good time catching up. Yeah, I you look at you look at a run of that nature and you look you look at the view that it gives you beyond the run at the Bigelows and yeah. it is I would have never ever thought Tote Road until I read it in there going, "Wow. That's you're right on." Yeah, but, I mean, not not every great run is going to be, you know, is is going to scare you, right? Like that's not, that's not necessarily what a, a great run is. Like some, some great runs. I mean, I'm trying to think like I have, there are runs that I love that didn't make it in the book, but, but there's like great, there's a great top to bottom groom trail at Aspen mountain that I love. And like, that's not, a lot of people might not think about that as a great run, but I love the challenge of getting off the gondola at the top of Aspen Mountain and skiing all the way back down to the base of the, the mountain without stopping and feeling that burn in your legs. So like there's there's runs that are just like that, like they're they're just they're challenging in different ways or they maybe they just have incredible views or they're there's a, an amazing restaurant to stop on along the way. Not, nothing about that trail that I put, the, the multiple trails that I put in from Zermatt over to Cervinia in Italy, nothing about the, those trails is challenging. But you get to go, stop at, you get to cross the border for one thing, from one country to another, and you get to stop at an incredible Italian restaurant along the way and have delicious pasta and maybe drink some wine or whatever, and then continue along your way. Plus the views are insane. You know what? And that's what we sometimes forget 
It's about the overall experience of the give and run. A very close friend who's 82 now, who lives in Boston, his name is Bob Battelle, Valley Nevada. I saw the president of that hill down in Chile, and I mentioned Bob, and his statement was, oh, Bob from Boston. I, I, I almost fell over. This was at the Boston Ski Show one year. But Bob Battelle always would call me up and say, I just skied this run. I could have been in Aspen. I could have been in Deer Valley. I could have been anywhere. It was about the moment of that run that just blew him away. Yeah. And so that's what Bob taught me was it doesn't have to be steep and deep. It doesn't have to be the West Basin at Taos, New Mexico. It, it could be just this moment. And yeah. I think that's what I get out of this book. Yeah. And I, there were other runs that were left out that are some of my favorite runs at, at particular ski areas, but sort of like the consensus among the people that I polled for this was that they liked another run better. So that's the run that made it in. But there's, the at, at Snowbird, my one of my favorite runs is Tiger Tails. Sure. And I've skied that in like chest deep powder before. And it still one of the greatest single experiences of my life was like my dad and I were there and uh, ran into a ski patroller on the lift. And he said, follow me. I'm about to drop this rope. And we went over there and skied it in chest deep powder. And it was, I still can remember that. And that was like 25, 25 years ago or something. Wow. You're getting old. I know. I'm almost, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 50. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So you're living in the Rockies now in Colorado. Why don't you give us, you got to dig into what's in the book. What are some of the great runs of Colorado that people shouldn't miss? Slopes of a lifetime. Well, here in Aspen, in the Aspen area, I put in uh, G8 up in Aspen Highlands, mm-hmm. um, which I would say, depending on how fast you are, you have to hike 30 to 45 minutes up the Highland Bowl and then drop into the, it's one of the first north facing slopes. And that always usually has nice light snow in it. If it's been skied off, it's chalky, sometimes bumped up a little bit, but the, the skiing in there is amazing. And I think that Highlands Bowl is one of the great experiences in all of skiing because there's no lift up there. So you got to You got to do the hike. You got to put in the work to do it. And I, yeah, the terrain, I mean, it's so steep. It's like 40, 45 degrees throughout that bowl. So it's really a special experience. And, and when, whenever somebody comes to visit, I try to get them up into the bowl. I'd say in the rest, throughout the rest of Colorado, I'm trying to now remember, Mike, what else I put in the book. I, I have some of my own favorites, but oh, the Mintern Mile is in there over in Vail. Oh, so, classic. Um, classic. A classic, which is not actually a Vail trail. It's, it's, it's out the gates and it's, you need to have equipment, your, your backcountry equipment and be safe and know what you're doing. But it's, it's pretty, it's pretty safe as far as backcountry runs go. And you can uh, ski all the way down to the town of Minturn. Um, and uh, I always like to go go do that and, and grab a margarita at the Minturn Saloon. 
which is a classic experience, just classic. And uh, let me see, what else do I have in there? Silverton Mountain. If you've never been to Silverton, I highly highly recommend it. They, They were just sold recently, but they are... Trying to, I've been promised that they're going to maintain that sort of backcountry-ish vibe. So if you've never been there, you you take there's one chairlift, you take that up, and again you have to hike up the ridge line to go ski most pretty much all the trails. And they're not they're sort of loosely named trails, but they're you ski these the slopes up there, and they're it is like skiing in the backcountry, and they usually are often are full of powder. Then you ski down to a bus that picks you up and drives you back to the the ski area. And that is, it's a great experience. They also have uh, heli ski in there. So if you, and it's a cheap, pretty cheap heli ski experience. You can pay a hundred bucks for a single bump. And that gets you up to some of this, the other stuff that is definitely untouched. That That's a huge deal in this day of heli skiing. Yeah. Huge deal. Well, why don't you, Come back to your New England roots a little bit outside of the book. Why don't you give your two favorite runs of all time here in New England oh for you God. personally? Let me think about that for a second. I think, I think that geez, North, North American. I think left gully is definitely one of them. Yep. And yeah. Okay. North American. I, I don't, th- is North American still called North American? Yet, yeah, it is. The only reason I know is because Mercedes said it was oh, okay. the other day. You spent a lot of time on that trail. Yeah, that was my, that was wh- where I did North American. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that trail. It's got a lot of terrain on it and it's where we did most of our training. North American and standard, I'd say were the two yep. trails where we trained the most. And yeah, I, I, I learned how to be a, a good skier there. So I, North American holds a special place in my heart. Plus I had some great races on North American because we trained on it all the time. And I do think it's a great race hill. In fact, I think the 1978 World Cup at Stratton was held on North American, North American and standard. And back then... There were lift towers on North American. Oh, yeah. Now it's, I think they moved the lift skiers left. Correct. Um, So it's that trail now you can really rip down. It's completely wide open. Oh, another trail at Stratton that I always loved was, I put it in the introduction of the book. Oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the name. North American Standard and then, oh, Lift Line. Yep, Lift Line is a great trail right next to, which is basically one trail over from Standard. But that's another trail that I always loved, like ripping down. And plus, I know like for people who only ski out west, the views don't mean much to them. But for me, having grown up there, even now, like when I go back and I'll hike up Stratton a lot in the summer and looking down at those views of that area, southern Vermont, I I get really sentimental and nostalgic. Still one of the most beautiful spots in the country. Really is. So on pages 386 and 387, you devote, vote, you devote the pages to protecting our winners. Why was this added in your, what are your thoughts here? Because it's, it's hugely important right now. We like, if you're ignoring climate change at this point, I think you just have your head in the sand or you've been sold a, a false 
promise or a false bad science, or, or I don't know what the deal is at this point, but we're seeing it out here yesterday here in basalt. It was almost 60 degrees and that's not right for February. And then today we were having a thunder snowstorm earlier. That's, that's just very strange for this month in Colorado, especially at this elevation. We're so high. So climate change is real. It's happening. If you're not doing something about it at this point, I think that you, you're, you're not, you don't really care about this planet and, and what's going on. And you don't care about future generations. We'll probably be, who knows, we might not be skiing in certain parts of the world in 20 years, I, and maybe sooner than that. The, 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 the glaciers are receding at an incredible rate in Europe. Some of those trails, one of a couple of the trails that I put in the book in Europe are glacier trails, and they might not exist. You might not be able to ski them, not just because the snow is melting, but because they're becoming more dangerous, like the, the crevasses are opening up. And it's just so... It was important for me to have that section in the book about what we can do now in order to cut try to cut down on climate change. I think, first off, I'm glad you put it in there. We had Jeremy Jones on, of course, on the podcast a while back, and we talked about that as well. Eric and I are both adamant that we need to get this message out and we need to act and I thank you for putting it in there. So I know you have, you're busy as a father now. What else are you doing? What other new projects are going on for the future that we can look for? Right now, I'm writing a really interesting story for GQ, a profile of a, a guy who is a professional whistleblower. It has nothing to do with skiing. This, this is about a guy who infiltrates shady companies and exposes them as frauds. And but it's a really cool story. So that should come out in sometime this summer. And then the other piece that I'm about to uh, dig into is a profile of Reed Hastings, the the new owner of Powder Mountain, and sort of look at what he's doing there and this public private model that he's introduced at that ski area. And that'll be in the New York Times probably sooner than later because the winter is almost over here. So I, I'm going there in a couple of weeks to ski with them. And then I got to crank that story out pretty quickly. Well, looking forward to reading that because that is for the listeners, that is Powder Mountain in Utah. Mm -hmm. And there's this marriage between private and public will be very interesting if this is the way you save the smaller non-epic icon mountains because Everybody's fighting for survival here. Exactly. It's it seems to be it's one, but we'll see if it works, right? But it's it seems to be in speaking with Reed, it's see he he thinks that this could work as a, as maybe a model for other ski areas. But what I appreciate just in talking to him is that he doesn't look at ski areas as a charity. He Reed Hastings could easily go in there and subsidize that mountain for the rest of his life. But that's not what he wants to do. He wants to make that ski area self-sustaining and he wants to maybe even hopefully make make have it turn a profit, which has been difficult for for powder. But so 
as he says, like, I, I support lots of charities. Skiing isn't a charity. Sure, sure. And that that makes all the sense in the world. So, Gordy, I want to thank you for coming on. This was awesome. It's great to catch up, but also to hear about your new book, A Hundred Slopes of a Lifetime. It is. It will stay on my tabletop because that's what it's meant for. Yeah, it's a coffee table book, so it's great to just put there and flip through it. So thanks an awful lot for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of the season and good luck with the articles that you have coming out. Thanks, Mike. Hey, welcome back to the Basecamp podcast. So great listening to Gordy. I'm a former journalist myself. I've had a glance through the book. It's spectacular, but I just loved hearing his his stories and where he drew inspiration from. What did you think? I've known Gordy for quite a while, of course. I I am really, really stoked on what he did here. I didn't realize National Geographic reached out to him, Mm. which is, hey, that's huge. But reading through this book, I haven't been through it all, but looking at it has really made me me excited about going places. Mm. There's places in Europe that I haven't been. I want to go. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Listening to his experiences and with his time with outside magazine, he strikes me as a skiing version of the journalist in, in the film, almost famous, which I guess was based on Cameron Crowe, his experiences. And in being a a rock, rock and roll journalist, he kind of got to live the rock and roll life. And, and Gordy, we know lives and breathes skiing. So I don't know if he's more skier than journalist or more journalist than skier, but it doesn't matter. They feed on each other. Well, as he stated, journalism, he didn't know what he wanted to do. Well, it sounds like my life half the time. <laughs> I want it, I want it all. I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Right. But the fact that journalism wasn't what he expected to be in until he got to Emerson and found out that he really liked it. And he could parlay it into where his passion was, which is skiing. Mm. And I I think that speaks volumes. And I've read a lot of his stories through the years and have followed his career. And I'm I'm just excited to see what he did here. Mm. And thanks to Gordy for being such a great guest. We'll put the link so you can buy the book in the show notes of this episode, but People, you know where to find books these days. Start with Amazon or wherever you buy your books online. 100 Slopes of a Lifetime. Terrific. Well, I'm going to let you close this out, David, being Eric's replacement. Sir, it would be my honor. Thank you for listening to the Basecamp podcast. It is a Siemens Media production. We encourage you to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. The Basecamp podcast is produced by yours truly, David Yaz. Have a great one, and we'll see you next time. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.